Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And before we go into our time uh, for the sermon today, there there are these moments, uh, either in our society or as part of our church family, where something's going on that we just need to talk about. Uh, And obviously the coronavirus is one of those. And I want us to just think briefly about how to think about it. How, How do we think about fearful, scary stuff when we can't do anything about it? Stuff that feels sort of like we're playing Russian roulette with our health or the health of our family, the health of our friends, and none of us really want to play the game in the first place. More pointedly, how, how do we think about this so that we don't fall off the equal and opposite reactions? One is to overreact to this situation, one is to underreact to this situation. One is to catastrophize this moment, one is to minimize. Or how do we avoid panicking, being fearful? or being complacent and stoic. And one maybe odd place to sort of go and think about this comes out of Psalm 23, recognizing that we are always living, as Psalm 23 puts it, in the valley of the shadow of death. When you're born, you have some awareness that there is a death coming. Some of us have to walk through this valley multiple times, but we're always doing that. What do you know, however, as a Christian? You know that you never walk through that valley alone. And you know that there is a day coming when there will not be that valley any longer, where there will be no more evil and no more fear. And that knowledge then has two implications. One is personal for each one of us, and one is a little bit more societal. The personal one is you can set your mind at rest. Your heart can have peace during these times where everything is scary and where you have no idea how things shift day to day. Your mind and your heart can be at rest because you know you're not going to go through this alone. But then second, societally, we want to recognize that this is an opportunity. It would be a shame for us as a church if all we did during this time was just hunker down and either be scared by everything that we're hearing and chase the latest rumors with each other back and forth, or just sort of wait for this all to blow over and so we can get back on with life. This is an opportunity for us where we can take the light that Jesus has shined into our own lives and use the darkness around us as an opportunity to shine into the rest of society. See, times of distress can be scary for us. They are downright terrifying for those who don't have any hope. I waited too long this week. I had coupons that I wanted to go use at the grocery store. I waited till Thursday, and I showed up in the parking lot. I've lived in our area about 18 years. I have never seen the parking lot not have one empty space in it. Cars are circling round and round the lot, waiting to pounce on the spot as soon as it opens up. And and people inside are panic buying and just filling carts with different things. You would not wish this time on anyone. It is not a good time, but it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to proclaim to the people around us that we know the goodness of a God who would rather give up his life than allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. And that kind of hope actually changes people. John Wesley, he's the founder of the Methodist Church. He set out from England to be a missionary to America in 1735, only he really didn't know the Lord. He was a very religious man. And on the way over, there was just this terrific storm that erupted. Mainsail was shredded. The the ship was threatened uh, with drowning. And the story goes that the English passengers on board were screaming as they panicked. And there's this other group of people, German 
Christians. They were known as the Moravians, who were not panicking. They were holding a worship service, and they didn't pause their singing uh, throughout the storm. And Wesley later talked with them, and he just sort of was, was wondering, what, what, what is this hope that you all have so that you're able to be so calm? Neither the men, the women, nor the children were frightened of dying. And it was something that allowed him to see there's a qualitative difference between their faith and his own. And it set him down this road to actually becoming a Christian. Up until that time, just been religious, convinced that he simply needed to work harder to earn God's love. But the emptiness of that was suddenly revealed in the middle of this larger crisis. And what he saw in that crisis was real Christian's faith. It was an opportunity that ended up reshaping the Church of England. Wesley went on to found the Methodist revival of the Anglican Church. And that's our opportunity, too, as Renewal Mainline. We want to do more than just survive this time. We want to thrive. We want to thrive especially by helping those, reaching out to those who are not thriving. So if you have the hope of the gospel in you, don't simply wait for this to pass. Look for it as an opportunity to see what God's doing in this world. If you have this hope, you have something to offer a frightened world. If you find yourself anxious and worried, it's an opportunity for you to press into the Lord to get to know him a little bit more deeply. It's also an opportunity to reach outside. So how are we going to handle this as Renewal Mainline? We're going to be wise throughout this time. We're not going to take the threat lightly. We're also not going to treat it as though the world is out of control and that everything is ending. We're going to take basic precautions, and so we won't get to meet physically. We'll have to continue meeting virtually until the government lifts the large group restrictions that they've asked us to abide by. At that point, we're probably going to make some changes uh, to deal with the offering baskets, to, to deal with communion, so that we're not running the risk of further infecting each other. We'll probably do fist bumps for a while instead of handshakes. But we're going to try to meet together as much as we can. We'll do that physically when we're able. We'll do it virtually when we have to. Uh, there's prayer next Sunday. Uh, Pastor David was announcing that. What will happen today after the service? The Zoom rooms will be open. And so if you can go to the Zoom room that your CG uh, was, was given, then those will be open after we're done here. You can fellowship. And we want to urge you, please don't give up meeting together. You need that fellowship. You need to be with your brothers and your sisters. It's an opportunity for us. How else are we going to handle this? The elders and the pastors actually had already set up a meeting before the governor made his declarations so that on a regular basis, every week we're getting together. We're going to be assessing what the latest news has been and making adjustments and changes that we need to going forward. And again, how will we handle this as renewal? We'll think outwardly. Who is in your neighborhood? Who's at work that you need to pray for? Who are the people that you need to reach out to? Who are the people that you can settle a phone call, text, email, say, you sound a little anxious, a little nervous. Do you want to talk about this? See, you have no idea who the next John Wesley will be. God does. And that person may be in your neighborhood. They may be a person that you've gone to school with. They may be someone that you've worked with. And what they need at this moment is to hear why you're not freaking out like everybody else is. Let them know that hope is that hope that is within you, and don't miss this moment. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have our second sermon of the morning. 
Lord God, you have given us a great hope. Lord, you've said that you are in charge of all of history. You're in charge of our lives. Lord, you have given up your own life, not merely as an example to convince us of how much you care for us, but because that was necessary in order to bring us into life and hope. Lord, since you have gone through that and since that was necessary, we believe that anything you lead us through is just as necessary. Lord, give us greater confidence in our hearts, confidence to trust you, and confidence to look for those that you also want to bring into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 16, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakkafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all want to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and not also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elu, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing our study in the book of Nehemiah this morning in chapter 6. And it's a study that has underlined for us that God's people have a calling. They have a purpose here on earth, a purpose that we have to give ourselves to. 
And it's a purpose that God lays on each one of our hearts to have a specific place in it, but it only gets accomplished when we all work together. And that's what you see through the first three chapters. We're now in chapter six, and you started to see in chapter four opposition to this building. And this opposition has been growing. Chapter four, we saw opposition coming at the people of God from outside. Last week, as Pastor Luke was showing us, opposition also came from inside the people of God. Chapter six continues the theme. There's still opposition, but this opposition is now a little bit different. It's not directed at the community as a community. Instead, this is a chapter that talks about when opposition becomes personal, when opposition starts to focus in on you as an individual. And the question is, what do you do then when you find yourself in evil's crosshairs? When you could so easily stray what God has given you to from what God has given you to do for the sake of his helping his people. And there are three really important things that we learn from Nehemiah. But before we do that, I want to caution us. Because Nehemiah is a very, I think, difficult book to apply. It's a very specific book. Nehemiah did very specific things, but he did them in a world that was very different from our own. And so it's very hard sometimes to go, what's in this for me? People struggle with this. And so a lot of people look at the book of Nehemiah and they say, okay, well, what happened here? He gathered people together. He had this great big building project. Uh, I guess it's about leadership. And so they start pulling leadership principles out of it. How do we go about getting things done? And if you think about what you can learn from Nehemiah, you realize, okay, there, there's some of that there. But that's not the primary reason that this book is in the scripture. You have to remember that this book occupies one small space in something that we call redemptive history. Redemptive history is the account. It's the history. It's the retelling. It's the remembering of what God's been doing to rescue his people from sin ever since the Garden of Eden. And so redemptive history is the narrative of God's activities in the lives of his people going back centuries, going back millennia, as he's reconnecting us with himself. It's one long, continuous story, but it comes to you in different chapters. And these different chapters each build on what came before, and they anticipate what's going to happen next. And the story continues until God says, you know what, I'm going to make a new story, a new creation, new heavens, and a new earth, one where there is no more evil. I don't have to reconnect my people with myself. They already are connected. And when I lay it out that way, you realize then that God is not doing the exact same thing at each point in history. Some parts of history tell us this is what God is doing to get his people ready for the coming of the Messiah. Other parts of redemptive history tell us this is what happened when the Messiah was here, this is what the Messiah did, and then other parts build on that and say, now that Messiah has come, now that he did what he came to do, these are the implications for how we live. And that affects then how we understand what to take from Nehemiah, and how to apply that to our own lives. For instance, Nehemiah refers in verse 3 to a great work. That's his shorthand for what he's doing for the sake of God's people. The surrounding leaders have invited him to come meet with them, and he says to them, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I'm doing something really important. Something special, this great work, something that's an aspect of what God is doing in his world that's essential. Now, we've been studying what this great work is. 
He's building a wall around the city of Jerusalem in a time of nation states. Why was that important? Because that's how you defined your identity. Everybody inside the wall had a certain identity, a certain lifestyle that was different from everybody outside of that wall. And so you needed this wall in order to create the people of God, in order to create people from whom the Messiah would come, but also people to whom the Messiah would come. That wall was there to help create a people. It was also there to help create a place. Because in that time, the Spirit of God did not come and enter into each one of us. If you wanted to be with God, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. That's where he made his presence known among his people. It was a place where in the temple he was hidden behind a curtain, a curtain that would be torn in half when the Messiah did what he had to do. So it was a place that announced God's presence is now available to his people. So without a people, without a place, without a wall to make the people and the place, there is no Messiah, there is no redemption, and there's no proclamation that you can now come and be in the presence of God. So what Nehemiah is doing is vitally important to getting people ready for when the Messiah comes. But there are parts of what he's doing that are not things that then carry forward. For instance, the people of God now don't build walls between ourselves and other people. We don't separate ourselves from other people. We're not afraid that somebody's unholiness, uncleanness is going to rub off on us. Instead, we live among the nations. We reach out to others. We build relationships. We let other people see our lives. We interact with other people. What else doesn't carry forward? We don't pray things like Nehemiah prayed in verse 14. Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. We don't pray, remember their sins. Why don't we pray that? Because the work that Messiah came to do was to receive the justice of God, the judgment of God for the sins of his people. And so the culmination of his ministry was not remember their sins, it was get rid of sins for his people and create a space, a gap, so that other people could be called to the Messiah. On the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Not Father, remember. Father, forgive. Open up this space. Jesus, in order to do that, received just as much, say it differently, he received more opposition to what he was doing than Nehemiah received. Opposition regarding this work Opposition that tried to remove him physically, tried to kill him, tried to compromise his integrity, tested him throughout his life, tried to stop what he was doing so that there would not be a cross, so there would not be redemption. Jesus had to continue to fight that opposition in order to do what God gave him to do. So Nehemiah had this great work that he was doing. Jesus had a greater work that he was doing. And you and I also now have a great work that we need to do. But because our place in redemptive history is different, our work is different. We're not getting people ready for the king. We're not doing the work of the king. What are we doing? We're extending the work of the king. We live under the rule of the king now. We proclaim this king to each other. We help each other understand who this king is. And we proclaim to those who don't yet know him that the king has come and that he calls us to know him. And, 
just like Nehemiah, just like Jesus, we also receive opposition to the work that God has given us to do. And that's where Nehemiah actually can be very helpful to us because he can help us understand how do we deal with the opposition, the adversity that we're going to receive when we are doing what God has given us to do. If you skip this understanding of redemptive history, history that points to Jesus and then history that builds on Jesus, what will you do? You'll try to look at Nehemiah out there and you'll try to draw a straight line between him and yourself. And you'll say, okay, Nehemiah had this problem uh, regarding a public building project. So what do I need to do? I need to take that story and I need to abstract these leadership principles from it. And then I can apply those leadership principles to my own life when I'm dealing with a business rival, somebody who's trying to shut down my project at work. Nehemiah has nothing to do with vague leadership principles. Nehemiah is about getting a people ready for their king. And that means that the opposition that Nehemiah is responding to is not generalized, generic opposition. It's very specific. It's targeted. It's opposition that's trying to shut down the king's agenda. And so you have to realize, Nehemiah had to respond to this opposition so that he could keep working to do what God had given him to do in order to make it possible for the king to come. As you look at that, you start to understand, okay, that helps me understand how Jesus himself had to respond to the opposition that he received. And as I look at how he handled that, now I start to understand how I'm to respond to the opposition that I receive. So keep all of that in the back of your mind. That's all the context for how we look at three things then that threatened to take Nehemiah's attention away from what he was doing and the three ways that he responded Because you and I are going to need to know what those three things are if we're going to deal with the opposition we get to what God's called us to do. What are you going to need when you face that kind of opposition? First, you need to know what God has called you to. Secondly, you need to rely on a strength that is outside of your own. And then thirdly, you need to value God more than you value anything else. You need to know what God's called you to. You need to rely on his strength in order to do that, and you need to value him above everything else. So first, know what God's called you to do. Nehemiah has this very tempting offer dangled in front of him. Verse 2, Sambal and Geshem, the political leaders in the area, invite him to a a meeting. They say, come and let us meet together at HaKepharim in the plain of Ono. Now, why is this tempting? Well, formerly, these were Israel's enemies. They had mocked what the Jews were doing. They plotted to attack and kill them. But now they've changed their tune. They're not threatening. They're now treating Nehemiah as an equal. Someone that they are inviting to come and have a conversation with. They're not trying to threaten him with force. Instead, they invite him repeatedly four different times. Really, really want him. And here's the temptation. Here's an opportunity to demonstrate that Nehemiah is not simply a capable leader of his own people, but he's able to conduct diplomatic missions that will bring peace to his people from outside. That'd be really tempting. I mean, wouldn't it be a great thing if he could broker a peace deal with these guys? And wouldn't it be a great thing if that would just elevate his reputation? Here's a leader who can actually make things happen. There's temptation in their offer. 
But as we've studied earlier, God did not put on his heart the desire to be a politician, a mover and a shaker on the world stage. God put a desire in his heart to repair the wall so that God's people could regain their identity. And it's that desire that Nehemiah falls back on. So he tells Sambalat in Geshem, verse 3, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? In other words, he says to them, I know what God's given me to do. And because I know that, I know what I have to say yes to. Which means, I also know what I have to say no to. I have to say yes to staying here and to seeing this wall get built. And so Sambalat and Geshem, no. I'm not coming down to you. Now, this may surprise you, but there's a number of times where Jesus is, uh, something is requested from him. And he also says no. In Matthew chapter 16, the religious leaders want him to do a miraculous sign to prove himself. And he tells them, verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He told them no. I'm not going to do what you're wanting me to do. His brothers come to him in John chapter 7, and they say, look, there's this feast happening in Jerusalem very soon. If you want to be a leader, if you want everybody to notice that you're a leader, you ought to go up to this feast. He says to them in verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He tells them no. Now, if you go through the times that Jesus tells people no, study them long enough, you start to discover a pattern. He says no to people when what they want from him is going to fit him into their agenda. And each time he feels like he's about to be co-opted by them, he says no. And the reason for that is found in John 5, 19, where he acknowledged that he could only do what he sees the Father doing. In other words, Jesus knew what he had to say yes to. He had to say yes to doing what the Father was doing. What was that? It was giving people a taste of this world that was to come and then opening the door up to that world that was to come. And any other request, any other suggestion was clearly then not what the Father was doing. And in each of those cases, Jesus says, no. That was his great work that he could not leave for any reason. Now, let's think today. What's our work After Jesus has opened this door to that other world, that new world, what's our work? It's to give people a taste of what that world is like. And so we have a calling to relieve suffering where we can, to remove social alienation, to welcome in people who feel cut off from the rest of humanity. We have a calling to communicate the nature of God to other people, to teach each other, here's how we actually live in this new world that God has made. You have to get rid of those old ways of thinking. This is the world that really is. Learn how to live here. That's why we're here. That's the work that we have to give ourselves to. And so if you and I are going to give ourselves to that work, we have to both understand that's the big picture of what that work is about. And then we have to understand our smaller piece in that, the piece that God puts on our own heart. When you know that, when you know what you have to say yes to, it's a lot easier to say no to anything that would distract you from it. So that's number one. Know what God has called you to. If you know that, you won't get drawn away from it. You'll be able to say no to all of those other distractions. Second, 
you need to rely on a strength outside your, yourself, a strength outside your own. After Sanballat's attempt to draw Nehemiah away from what he's doing, Sanballat tries a different tactic. This time he's going to try fear. If the carrot didn't work, maybe the stick will. And so he sends Nehemiah an open letter in uh, verse 6. It's open. That means that there's no seal on it. Anybody can read it. This is going public. He's making sure Nehemiah understands this is what's actually going to be the word out on the street. And he says to him, look, there's, there's rumors that are swirling around. Geshem's also heard these rumors. Rumors that the real reason behind what you Jews are doing is that you're planning to rebel against Persia. And that what you're planning to do, Nehemiah, is you're going to be king. And Sanballat says, verse 7, and now the king, meaning the king of Persia, will hear of these reports, which really is, sounds like a veiled threat. I'm going to make sure that he hears of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. He's threatening to take rumors to Nehemiah's boss. Rumors that say Nehemiah is planning to rebel against you. Now what's Sanballat trying to do? He's trying to scare Nehemiah into doing something foolish, into meeting with him. And he figures if he can't entice Nehemiah, maybe he can pressure him. And so he invites Nehemiah to think about a scenario in the future that Nehemiah really, really doesn't want to have happen. That the king might hear about these rumors. And, and, and if the king hears about these rumors, that's not going to go well for Nehemiah. And so then Sanballat offers him a solution. Let us take counsel together. Let's meet. Let's find a way to make sure that that future scary scenario doesn't happen. You realize this is how fear works, right? It moves you in this kind of way. It shows you something right in front of you, something unpleasant, these rumors that are going around. But it doesn't let your gaze stay there in front of you. Instead, it invites you to take what you're looking at and start to extrapolate it off into the future and imagine how badly that future might turn out. And then fear sits back while you look down the road at that imaginary future and you say to yourself, I will do anything to make sure that that future never happens. What's this look like for us as we do our work? We, 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 we want to talk to people about the Lord. We want to enter into their lives and care about them. That means that we have to be intentional. and We have to initiate and we have to put ourselves out there. And as you think about doing that, maybe your mind starts to go to places where you think, you know what, I, I might look a little forward. I might look a little foolish. I might look a little silly. I might get into a conversation that I don't know how to get out of. I, I might not have all the answers. I might end up looking like, uh, I, I'm uneducated and I, I don't know anything. And as you project that future down the road, you say to yourself, you know what, I can't stand the thought of being embarrassed. I can't stand the thought of being singled out. I can't stand the thought of looking silly. And so I will avoid that at, at any cost. And out of fear, you say nothing. And you don't enter into this good work that God's given you to do. Now notice here that fear is not fair. It doesn't show you all the possible roads that are there. Sure, it shows you this one where you would be embarrassed, but it doesn't show you the road that says, who knows, maybe uh, the person will actually be very open to being cared for. Or who knows, maybe God will show up and he'll give you the words like he promised so that you have a sense of what to say. Or maybe you'll discover that being embarrassed for the sake of Christ 
is not as crushing as you thought it would be. Fear doesn't show you any of those roads, those potential outcomes. Instead, it locks you into this one and says, this is the only one, and, and therefore you look at that and you think, I, I can't imagine surviving that. So you pull back and you don't take part in what God's doing. Now, how do you fight against that? Nehemiah is on to Sanballat's game because what Sanballat proposes doesn't make any sense. If Nehemiah really is plotting this revolution, then coming to talk to Sanballat is going to make it look like Sanballat and Nehemiah are colluding on this revolution. That's a look that Sanballat really doesn't want. And so what Sanballat is proposing doesn't make sense given what he's saying the problem is. And so Nehemiah understands it's just one more attempt to get us to stop doing what we're doing by making us afraid to keep on going. Nehemiah understands all that. But notice that he doesn't rely on his understanding to fight against fear. Instead, he prays, verse 9, O God, strengthen my hands. Now you think about this. Nehemiah is smart. He's intuitive. He's logical. But he doesn't rely on being smart, intuitive, and logical to get him out of fear. He doesn't think that's going to be enough to overcome his temptation. Instead, he thinks, what I really need is for God to supernaturally strengthen me so that I can keep doing this work. Not surprisingly, you discover Jesus does the same thing. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 8 tells us, In the days of his flesh, in the days when Jesus was on this earth, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now I want to go through this very quickly, but follow the logic. And if you start in verse 8 and work backwards, it's a little easier to see. Verse 8 tells us that he suffered things while he was on earth. Not simply on the cross, but earlier. And that he learned obedience through those things. It's not that he was disobedient and he had to figure out how to become obedient. It's that he got an insider's look as a human being of what it means to obey God despite what you're suffering. That he resisted all those temptations that come to you and me when we're suffering, those temptations to disobey God. And he obeyed God anyway. He learned obedience through what he suffered. But how did he resist? How did he obey? How did he hold his entire life to the path of the cross? Not just the one event of the cross, but that entire path that led up to it. Verse 7. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Don't overlook this. He prayed. The Son of God, as a human being, knew that he needed more than his own strength to deal with things that could tempt him away from the cross, that could pull him away from the work that God gave him to do. And so he asked for help. Help that God would give him the strength to continue that work. That's what you and I have to trust as well. We can't rely on great programs to get the work done that God's given us to do. We can't rely at Renewal Mainline on ministries or staff or leaders to create a godly community that will then reach out across this region. Those are all important things that we need. They are the ways that we do the work. 
but they're not what we're relying on to get the work done. If we rely on that, if we rely on ourselves, eventually something's going to be big enough, scary enough to come along to make us quit. And so we have to rely on this God who is strong enough to do what he's given us to do. And so we ask him for that kind of help. Oh God, strengthen our hands. So one, you have to know what God's called you to. Two, you have to, have a, you have to rely on a strength outside your own. Three, you have to value God above all other things. By the time you get down to verse 10, things are really heating up. The opposition isn't just trying to distract Nehemiah. They're not just trying to spread rumors about him. The word is out now that they're trying to kill him. Or at least that's what they want him to believe. They've hired a prophet, Shemaiah, to tell Nehemiah that his life is in danger. To propose that there's a way to save it. He could come and hide himself in the temple. And so Shemaiah says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Shimei's advice sounds reasonable. It sounds like the prudent thing to do. It sounds logical. Okay, here's the reality. They are coming to kill you. Therefore, let's do something about that. Let's go hide in the temple. But there's a trap here. Something's wrong with this plan. We're not exactly sure at this point what that is. But Nehemiah knows, verse 11, that he is unable to enter the temple and live. And it may be supposition that Shemaiah is inviting him to go where only the priests are allowed to go. Or it may be that Nehemiah is a eunuch, therefore not permitted into the temple. The details are fuzzy, but Nehemiah is very clear. And he says, verse 13, that if he does what Shemaiah is urging him to do to save his own life, that he's going to end up sinning against God. He says, I'm not about to do that. He's not willing to disobey God, even if that means his own life is on the line. He values God. How, how do you know? Because he listens to him. He listens to what God has said. And he knows the truth of what Jesus is going to say later, that you can only be a God follower. You can only be a disciple if you hold him in higher esteem than you hold anything else. Jesus has really strong language when he says it in Luke chapter 14. This is verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So compared to how you value him, everything else in your life, including your own life, everything else will look like hate. That's what kind of love you have to have for him. The question is, well, how how do you know what you love most? Here's a question. If everything that you love, everything that you value, were slowly taken away one by one by one, so that there's only one thing that you're left holding on to, what is that last thing, that last thing that is so important that you would say, I will not give this up, even if it means I have to give everything else up. This is the thing that is most important to me. This is the thing that determines how I live with all of these other things. That last thing has to be God. Because if it's anything else other than God, you'll end up losing them all anyway. Think about it this way. Let's say that you fall for the temptation that Nehemiah is being tempted with, to preserve your own life rather than valuing what God has said and valuing God's holiness. 
So after everything else is stripped away, you're left there holding on to your own life. But it costs you God. At some point, you're going to lose your life too. Because at some point, the curse of sin wins out. Curse of sin brings death. Death is stronger than you are. It has the power to take away your life that you're trying to hold on to. And one day, you will not be able to hold on to your life any longer. Hold on to your life more than you hold on to God. Value your life more than you value God. You lose your life, too. And that's true of everything else that you would value. Everything else in this world that you love, you will lose because of the curse. You cannot take your wealth with you. You can't take your research and your work projects with you. If you hold on to your life long enough, you'll lose all the other relationships that you've ever had. They'll all leave. Some will move away. Some will die. And after you yourself are gone, you'll lose the reputation that you've worked so hard to build up. Because in a little while after you and I are gone, no one's going to remember us. Hold on to anything other than God. Value anything more than you value him and more than you value what he says and you lose it all. Hang on to him, however. Value him more highly than you value anything else. Let everything else be ordered underneath of him so that you relate to it the way that he calls you to. And you will have everything that you ever need. He promises to give you what you need in this life. And he promises to give you everything in the future so that you can enter into a a world full of joy. A world that is fully satisfying. A world where you are not simply holy, you're happy. Nehemiah knew that. He was unwilling to hang on to his own life if that meant he couldn't hang on to God. And by hanging on to God, that was enough to finish the work that God gave him to do. It was work that all the rest of the nation saw. And verse 16, they realized this work, finishing the wall, had only been accomplished with the help of our God. It was work that helped the unbelieving nations see the power of God at work. What has Sanballat done? He's riled up the enemies of Israel and he's gathered them all together. And what is it that the enemies of Israel are seeing? They're seeing the glory of God. That is all that his opposition has generated. And this is how God works. He gives us things to do. He puts things on our hearts, things that are necessary for accomplishing his work in this world. And when we do them, we're guaranteed opposition. And as we press through that opposition, it becomes clear to all the people around us that we could only do that if there was supernatural help. And if, when that happens, God himself then is glorified. That's what Jesus lived for. It was so that God would be noticed. And so Jesus put God and his desires, his agenda, above everything else of value in his life. His goal was that God's glory would be seen much more clearly. And so he knew what God called him to. To seek after the lost sheep of Israel, to lay his life down for them. Biggest temptations that he faced were to hang on to his own life. It's what Satan does at the very beginning of his ministry. He comes to him in the wilderness and he says, here's an easy way out. Just worship me. Worship me and I'll give you the nations. Put me first. Put me ahead of God. And not only will you save your own life, but you'll say it, get your people too. The glory of the nations has been given to me. I can give that to whoever I want. Worship me and you can have that. You can have it all. 
And Jesus said no. He would have had his people eternally guilty, both his people and himself, eternally separated from the Father. And Jesus said no. Nehemiah was not able to enter into the earthly temple without sinning. Jesus could enter into the heavenly temple, according to Hebrews, without sinning, and he did. Only he didn't enter there to preserve his life. He entered there to offer his life before God to pay for his people's sins, to pay for your sins, to pay for every time that you've been distracted from what God's called you to do, to pay for every time that you've been scared to do what you knew that you should do, to pay for every time that you valued something else more than you valued this God. And because Jesus did that, because he entered into that holy place to make atonement for you, to pay for your sins. We also now enter into that presence of God and we enter in guilt-free, confident that we can enter into this world, live in such a way that the nations will now see the glory of God as they see what he does in us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we want the nations to see you. We do not want to be driven by fear. We don't want to be the people who shrink back from the work that you've given us to do. Holy Spirit, come. Make these words true in our hearts. Life-giving, life-breathing. So that, Father, we might glorify you in everything that we are and everything that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in worship together. I respond to uh, this word with a song.